listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. Today I want to start a new series called Eyewitness. Eyewitness. And, and, and I have to warn you, um, I took a break for three weeks and, and Pastor Andrew did a tremendous job of preaching. Of course, last Sunday I was back in the pulpit for Easter. But I can tell you, when you take a, a preacher out of the pulpit for three weeks, it becomes like fire shut up in your bones. And, and I was just waiting. I was just like, man, I'm, I'm ready to get... And you know I'm a series preacher, okay? I didn't say I'm a serious preacher. <laughs> I said I'm a series preacher is what I am, okay? And, and I have been longing to preach this series. I'm excited about it. However, today is a little different because today to, to, to start this series, to lay the foundation, I, I've, I've got to do more teaching today. It's going to be more informative. I promise you by the time we get to the end of today, you'll, you'll find Pastor Rocky back in, in that preaching mode, okay? But just stay with me. If you're taking notes, good luck because there's just a lot of information that's about to come your way. But, but I feel strong that this is the direction God wants us to go. Um, at Easter, and, and even throughout the year, we often talk about the resurrection, and, and rightly so. We should. We should. Because our entire worldview as, as Christians, our entire worldview is built upon the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope you understand that. Everything that, that we believe is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That is what makes us different. Without the resurrection, our belief system is as lifeless as, as every other religion. But because we have a risen Savior, it separates us. It's what happens after the resurrection that corroborates the legitimacy of a living Savior. Seldom do we look at what happened immediately after the resurrection. We celebrate Easter, and even throughout the year, we sing about his resurrection power. But seldom do we look at what happened immediately after the resurrection, and the 40 days that follow the resurrection give validity to the resurrection. And so I think it's important for us. For some of us, this is just going to be, um, especially the first part of today, it's going to be learning to defend our faith and to figure some things out so that, so that we don't look stupid when we talk about a resurrected Savior. If we're basing our faith on this, man, I hope you're getting this. I hope you, I hope you create a hunger right now inside of you for this. If we, if we are basing our faith on this, then we need to be able to explain this, okay? So with that being said, I, I want you to know that, that what I'm going to share with you today, it has the ability to completely change a mindset because the most brilliant of atheistic minds have been transformed by the documented appearances of Christ after he was crucified. I want to say that again. I want you to understand the most brilliant of atheistic minds have been transformed by the documented appearances of Christ after he was crucified. People like Lee Strobel, former legal editor of the Chicago Tribune and, and author of a, of a wonderful book called The Case for Christ. He journeyed from atheism to believer from the captivating evidence and much of what I'm going to show you today. People like Josh McDowell, He's later in life, but, but Josh McDowell, who had every reason to not believe in God at an early age, he was, he was raised in an abusive, alcoholic home, 
um, I, I heard him tell this story. He had to nearly kill his father as his father was trying to kill his mother. To defend his mother, he almost had to kill his father. And, and, and it's just sad. Um, um, from the ages of 6 to 13, Josh McDowell was homosexually raped every week at the hands of a family member, sometimes twice a week. And his own parents would not stop the abuse. I, I, I tell you that because someone who's been through that, they've almost got a reason not to believe in a good God. When you've gone through stuff like Josh McDowell has gone through, it, 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 it puts you in a position mentally to where I can almost understand their resistance to a living Savior. While in college, Josh McDowell found a group of young adults that seemed so hopeful. They were full of life, and he knew there was something different about them. And so he, he approached them, and he said, what is it? What is it about you guys? What, what makes you so different? And they said two words to him, Jesus Christ. And when they said these words, he was outraged. He, he, he went off on them, and he said, I'm tired of you Christians pushing that Bible and your religion down our throats. He said, I'm sick of this. But this group of young adults with the love of Christ in their hearts, they, they decided they would challenge him. And so they challenged him uh, um, to use his intellect to explore the validity of the Bible and Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He accepted their challenge just as an effort to disprove Christianity. However, if you know his story in the process, Josh McDowell, the, the, the evidence caused him to become a believer in Christ. And you can read about his findings in his best-selling book, More Than a Carpenter. I, I've, I've read that book a few times. I've given out many, dozens of copies of this book. It's a short read, but it's wonderful. More Than a Carpenter is a life-changing book. It's a great evangelistic tool. And also, he and his son wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But understand, this man was an atheist, set, and he was set out to disprove Christianity. And because of the evidence, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Church, I tell you that because the evidence speaks for itself. Jesus is alive. He is living and he is breathing. Amen. Jesus Christ is alive. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 says, After his suffering, Jesus, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Paul told the church in, in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15 and 6, he said that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He said there are some that have died. He said, but most of the 500 people that he appeared to at one time are still alive. In other words, there are eyewitnesses that you can go and ask them personally. Over 500 people at one time saw a living Jesus. These were living and breathing eyewitnesses that could testify that they had seen Jesus alive. But probably the most convincing evidence to me, the most convincing evidence that they actually saw Jesus was the fact that they were willing to face persecution, imprisonment, and for some of them, even death for their belief in a resurrected Savior. Understanding 
that at his arrest and his crucifixion and even upon his death, they scattered. They were scared for their lives. But something happened. Something changed to where now they believed in it and they were willing to put their lives on the line. You see, church, people don't just put their life on the line for something that they don't know to be true. But if a man says, I'm going to rise again after three days and he does it, you have a shift in your faith. And suddenly you put all of your faith in that man. So here we are, post-Easter. The excitement has dwindled. The crowds have waned. All of the Easter eggs have been found except for the ones that were actually hidden. And they'll be discovered at a later date after they've baked in the Florida sun. That's always interesting. But I want us, I want us to take a journey with these, other, uh, these early believers, the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, and specifically the first 40 days after his resurrection. I feel like it's very important for me to pray for us right now. I want God to give us understanding and clarity. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity I have to preach your word. God, I pray that, first of all, you would anoint me to speak the truth. God, I do not want to misrepresent what you want to be said. Clear my mind and download to me, Lord, what you want me to convey to your people, to your sheep. God, I pray for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room, and I pray right now that you would open their ears to hear and their hearts to listen, Lord, right now. Let us hear your word. Let us be transformed by it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read this story about this, this husband, this wife, and the mother-in-law, the wife's mother, that they all traveled to the Holy Land together. At least my in-laws were in the first service today, and I said it then, and I'll, I'll say it now. I have a great mother-in-law. She's fantastic. I, I would travel anywhere on the planet with my mother-in-law. She's great. Not so much with my father-in-law. <laughs> no. This, this man and his wife and his mother-in-law, they, they traveled to Israel, and unexpectedly while they were there, his mother-in-law passed away. They met with a funeral director there, and the funeral director informed them of their options. And the options were, were first of all, for $20,000, they can prepare her body, put her in a box, and ship her back to the United States so she could be buried here on home soil. The other option, and the funeral director was really painting the picture of this, he said, your mother-in-law was a Christian. Why, why don't you just have her buried in the, in the Holy Land? And he said, rather than $20,000, we can do this for, for $5,000. We can have a proper burial for her right here and save you a lot of money. And, and what an honor it would be to bury her here. They went back to the hotel that night, and they, they thought about it. They prayed about it. The next morning, the man got up bright and early, went to the funeral director, and he said, I've decided that we are going to to go ahead and, and pay the $20,000 and have her shipped back to the United States. And the funeral director, he was puzzled. He said, I don't understand. Why? He said, what's wrong? 
Why wouldn't you want to save money and bury her here? He said, because I've read this story about a man that uh, died here in Israel and three days later he rose from the grave. He said, I just don't want to take any chances with that woman. (laughs) Amen. Amen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Church, some people tried to discredit the resurrection because of apparent differences between the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For many atheists, it's the reason why they can't believe is because of the discrepancies or what, what they believe to be discrepancies, especially as it relates to the resurrection of Christ and who was there and who witnessed it. And, and when, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and you're not willing to put the work into it, it, it can come across as, as, as discrepancies and, and, and that it, it, it doesn't flow, it doesn't work. And, and, and I submit to you, and please, please hear my heart, that these are not conflicting accounts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but rather they're a timeline of events that must be pieced together. You've got to do the investigative work if you're going to receive it. Because basically what these are, these are, are witnesses, or at least they, they, the information has come down from witnesses, and, and you've got to piece all of this information together. It, it's, a mal, it, it's a matter of putting people in the right place at the right time. Uh, each of the four gospel writers, they, they each give us a bit of information about the first appearances of Christ after the resurrection. But rather than pinning them against each other, we've got to put the timeline together. And so in preparation for the series, I pulled up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and, and I, I did my best. Um, I, I can tell you, I, I looked at my wife and I said, this is boggling my mind right now. Trying to, to, trying to piece all of this together. But I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it so, that, so that, that I can defend my faith. I think it's worth it so that you can defend your faith. And so what I did is I went and I compared Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, and John chapter 20. They're all the resurrection accounts of Christ. And, and we can begin to see how the first sighting of a resurrected Jesus came about. Rather than read all of those scriptures that I have read numerous times in preparation for this, I have come up with a timeline that I believe is pretty close to accurate, okay? I'm not going to tell you that it's infallible. It's pretty close to accurate. And I want to share that with you over the next few moments. Again, this is informative. I feel like it's important for the foundation for this. And if you'll stay with me, I'll bring you some hope at the end, okay? But, But just stay with me, okay? Here's... To the best of, of my ability, here's, here's the timeline. Here's what it looked like. On the third day, very early in the morning, there were, were a group of women, including Mary Magdalene, and they approached the tomb to complete Jewish burial customs. They arrived with supplies in hand to complete Jewish burial customs. But when they get to the tomb, there has been an earthquake, and they find the tomb is open, and, and they're, all, they're all worried about uh, that someone may have taken the body, that there was a, a, a grave robber that has taken the, the body of, of Jesus Christ, their rabbi. Mary Magdalene is so distressed over this that she runs back to tell Peter and John of, of what she has witnessed and that there are potential grave robbers. Now, now think about the mindset here. No one from, from all of these followers actually believed that the resurrection was going to take place. Because if they did, 
they would have been waiting there at the tomb. None of them were there. Mary runs back to tell Peter and John that there are potential grave robbers and the body of Christ is missing. The women who remained at the tomb, they encounter an angel who declares that Jesus has risen and then that angel commands them to go and tell the, the disciples. At first, these women are trembling and, they're, and they're, they're, they're scared. They're scratching their heads trying to figure out what's going on. This is a lot to take in. And they're trying to figure out what's going on so they don't tell anyone. But eventually, they find their composure, and they go to the disciples, and they tell them what they had witnessed, and at first, the disciples don't believe them. It's right there in the scriptures. The disciples don't believe them. Peter and John, upon hearing the news from Mary Magdalene that there are potential, a potential body snatcher in this whole thing, they run to the tomb to investigate Mary's claim. John makes sure, in his gospel, John makes sure to tell us that he outruns Peter to the tomb. He just shares that information. It's not important except to John. John says, I want everyone to understand. I outran Peter. I'm faster than Peter. Peter is always, always getting all the glory. He's at the right hand of Jesus all the time. He's, he seems to be Jesus' favorite. But, but I am the one that outran Peter to the tomb. And he tells us that. When they get there, they discover this empty tomb, but no angel. There's not an angel for these guys. John also makes sure that we know, that the, the, the readers of, of his gospel, he makes sure that we understand that as soon as he peeked inside the tomb, that he believed in the resurrection. John makes sure. He's, he's painting a picture for us. John's a good man. And he believed in the resurrection. What he doesn't record is Peter's response. He has no, no recollection at all of, of, of Peter's conclusion of what has happened. Mark... The Gospel of Mark said that Peter went home and marveled at what had happened. But there's still one person out of everyone that we've mentioned who is still distressed. And her name is Mary Magdalene. She's still not buying it. Mary still believes that someone came to the tomb and stole her rabbi's body. And she's distraught over this. Mary Magdalene, after informing Peter and John, she followed them back to the tomb. Got there much later than them because those two guys were racing to the tomb. And when she gets there, she remains, she stays, and she just weeps. After Peter and John leave, she just stays there just crying. It's such a hard time for the followers of Christ. Think about all that she had been through and what Jesus meant to her. According to the Bible, at one time in her life, she was tortured by seven demons. Seven, seven demons possess this woman. And just by laying his hands on her, Jesus delivered her of seven demons. You may also remember that when an angry mob wanted to stone her to death for her sexual promiscuity, Jesus stood up for her. Actually, he stooped down for her. And he wrote in the sand as they were accusing her 
stones in hand ready to kill her. You might remember what Jesus said to those men. You that is without sin, I want you to cast the first stone. And he begins writing in the sand again. By the time Jesus stands up, every one of her accusers, they have dropped their rocks and they have walked off. And Jesus looks at this woman and he says, where are your accusers? And She says, I have none, Lord. That's who Jesus was to her. He was her savior. He was her deliverer. And they brutally murdered him. And now his body is missing. John chapter 20, rather. John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. I want to read of this encounter. John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Let me pause there just for a moment. How many times in life have we felt abandoned by Christ, abandoned by God, like he's nowhere to be found, when in reality, he's right there looking over our shoulder the whole time. She saw Jesus standing there and didn't even recognize that it was him. Sometimes we go through life and we don't even recognize how close God really is. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Again, she's still thinking that someone stole the body. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What an amazing encounter, church. This woman who, who did not have faith in the resurrection. This woman who, who did not believe that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. She has an encounter. She is an eyewitness of, of a resurrected Christ. It's a life-changing moment for her. And in that life-changing moment, Jesus looks at her and says, Don't touch me. Don't touch me. I don't know about you, but that troubles me. Upon first reading this, it, it, it just feels so cold. Especially as you continue reading. Let, let's continue. Same chapter. Let's just, it's the same day, actually. Let's go to verse 19. John 20, verse 19. This is later in the day. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, 
The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, can you imagine being in that room? The doors are locked. You know everyone in the room. You know it, it, everyone there is accounted for. And all of a sudden, Jesus just shows up. You haven't seen him since he was hanging on a cross. Jesus just shows up and says, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here's where it becomes troubling to me. Verse 24, the very next verse. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's very skeptical in this moment. He says, unless I can touch the nail-scarred hands and feel his side, I'm not going to believe. Here it is, verse 26. Eight days later. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Jesus, uh, then he said to Thomas, rather, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's talking about us. We are blessed when we can believe in a resurrected Savior, yet we have never seen him with our own eyes. When we have that faith to believe that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is well, and that he is living Jesus told Thomas, blessed are people when they can put their faith in me, even when they can't see. It's interesting, though, and what troubles so many people is that Jesus told Mary in her encounter, can't touch this. Don't touch me. It seems cold. It's disheartening. Especially as you read those scriptures and you come to the realization that eight days after that encounter, he allows doubting Thomas to touch his nail-scarred hands and put his hand into his pierced side. But what you have to understand is that as a rabbi, Jesus operated in the office of a prophet. Hear me out. Hear me out. As a rabbi coming and teaching the Old Testament, his, his yoke, as he was presenting his, his interpretation of the Old, Old Testament, he spoke prophetically. He operated in the office of a prophet. That was based on, on partially what, what he knew, partially based on what he knew. 
You see, from a young age, he would have, he would have entered into, into school, and, and as, as he progressed, if, if he really was smart enough, then he would have continued moving into the, the ranks of a disciple and eventually possibly a rabbi, and, 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 and Jesus had it. He had it. He, he, he understood Scripture. He knew Scripture. He probably memorized most, if not all, of the Old Testament and committed it to memory, and so he moves up the ranks when others are going to, to the family business. He stays in school, and, and he moves up the ranks, and, and so it's partially on, on his knowledge, what he had, had, had learned, but, but there, there's a second part to, to becoming a rabbi, and it's the approval of two other rabbis. So in order for him to operate in this office of a, of a prophet, of a rabbi, He's, he's got to have two other rabbis that, that say, we put our stamp of approval on you. And we know that when, when he was being baptized, at the beginning of his ministry, he was being baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a rabbi before Jesus was a rabbi. And as Jesus is walking up, John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He puts one rabbi, puts his stamp of approval, and says, he's going to be a rabbi. Upon him being baptized, we hear a voice from heaven, God Almighty, and everyone there can hear it also. And the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He gets the second stamp of approval, and no one can deny it because they all heard the voice from heaven. And now Jesus is a rabbi, and he operated in that office of a prophet as a rabbi. We understand that. But now, in this moment, after the resurrection, Jesus was about to begin operating as our priest. It's, it's different. A rabbi is a teacher of the law. The priest has the ability to go into the presence of God. And we know that he's got to ascend to the Father and he's got to be in the presence of a holy God. And in order to walk into that office, there was a ceremonial cleansing that had to take place. We find this in the Old Testament law um, when, when uh, uh, Aaron, Moses' brother, when Aaron and his sons were being prepared to become the priests, God gives them the, the, the method for ceremonial washing. Uh, listen Listen to this in Leviticus 8, verses 33 and 34. It tells us exactly why that on the eighth day, Thomas was allowed to touch him. Listen, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As you, have been done to, as you have been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. There it is. It's atonement. It would take seven days in order for him to, to uh, be made atoned for. And understand what Jesus had gone through for us. Please, I, 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 hope, I hope you're getting this. This is so important for us to understand. Jesus ha had carried the weight of the world on him. That is, is a term that we use sometimes just when life gets stressful. I'm carrying the weight of the world. He literally carried the weight of the world on him. He carried the sins of the entire world, their sin, and, and our sin. It all, all of that was piled onto Jesus, and, and, he, and it's messy. Church, understand that, 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 that Christianity is just messy. If you're looking for, for something that's a, a little bit more clean cut, just understand that's not Christianity. That's not what Christ is about. Christ became messy and carried all of our sin and all of our shame so that we would not have to carry it to the cross. He carried it to the cross, and so he, he, he was messy. He also, on that second day, 
While he was in the grave, he marched into hell and he took back the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He went to battle for us. And how many of you know the battlefield is messy? It's messy. And Jesus looks at Mary and he knows that this is a time of purification for him because he's got to go as our high priest, as the one making atonement for our sin. He's got to go to a holy father, a holy God, and stand before him. And you can't walk into the presence of a holy God covered in the sins of humanity. And so he's got to go through a time of purification because the one that knew no sin became sin for us and for our atonement. He had to be purified from all sin and all shame. But, but here's what's cool about this whole thing. Jesus, many people wanted to see him. Everybody's hearing, we, we think there's been a resurrection. They've either stolen his body or there's a resurrection. Peter wants to see him. That was, that was possibly his best friend. Peter wants to see him. John wants to see him. He just wants to tell Jesus that he outran Peter. So John wants to see him. All of the other disciples, they want to see Jesus. Everyone wants to see Jesus. If, if what he claimed that was going to happen, that in three days he would rise again, in three days that his temple would be rebuilt, if, if that is a reality, everyone wants to see that. Hey, I'm sure his mother wants to see him. And his brothers, they're not even believers at this point. But that's their big brother. And if he's alive, I know they want to see him. But out of everyone that wanted to see Jesus, Mary needed to see Jesus. It was different. Because she's the one that's still standing at the tomb when everyone else has left. And she's in disbelief that there's a resurrection. She thinks someone has stolen his body. And she's standing there weeping. And, and, and she's crying. She's distraught over this. And the first one that gets to see him is Mary Magdalene. And the fact that Jesus made time for Mary tells us that no matter who we are, Jesus still has time for us. But there, there's one last thought, though, that, that I've got to leave you with as we talk about this today. Jesus intentionally told Mary not to cling to him. Let's take the ceremonial washing out, out of the picture here. Because I believe that, that there's something more going on. The Greek word for, for cling to, when Jesus said, don't cling to me, that, that, the Greek word there is hapto. And hapto means to fasten to, to lay hold of. The best way for me to describe it is like this. Um, when Mandy and I go and stand in the foyer after service, there's, there's people that'll walk up, and it, especially after, after COVID, and, and, and honestly, just being respectful of people. And, and listen, I'm a hugger, but I know not everybody is. And, I, you know, first-time guests, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. You're never going to come back to church if the pastor just, you know, just starts hugging on you. You know, that's, that's our, our, my dad was a hugger. I'm a hugger. My family's a hug. We just, we're huggers. Now we are, but... But understanding everybody's not, many times people are coming through the line and I, I'll extend my hand out or I'll, I'll offer a fist bump. But you'll see these people. It doesn't matter how far I stick my hand out. 
doesn't matter how far I stick my fist out, they're coming in. And they are ready for a hug. It's like, bring it in. Come on, bring it in. Let's, let's hug. Let, let's hug it out, you know. They're just ready. It's hapto. Clinging to, embracing. Jesus could see that Mary Magdalene was, was coming in for the hug. Because Mary wanted to hold on to Jesus tightly. In her moment of unwavering, or, or, or rather wavering faith, in, in this moment of despair and, and disappointment, she doesn't want to let go. She has been so mournful over this situation, and now Jesus is standing before her, flesh and blood, right before her, and she is ready to just grab hold of him, and, and he says, no, no, you can't touch me. I've come to this understanding that both Mary and Thomas, both, they needed more faith. Both of them needed more faith. Mary needed faith enough to let go of Jesus. To believe that he's alive even when she can't tangibly see him or touch him. Some of you are there today. You need that kind of faith. That you can believe in him even when he's not standing right in front of you. Thomas, on the other hand, Thomas needed faith enough to grab hold of Jesus and not let go. These two people are two different mindsets. Mary needed to loosen her grip. Thomas needed to strengthen him, his, his grip. And, and the, resurrection, the resurrected Christ gave both of them the faith that they needed. And I'm not sure where you're at in your walk. Maybe, maybe you need the faith to believe even when you don't see him working, even when you don't see the, the tangible evidence. Maybe, maybe you need that faith today. Maybe you need, you need to see physical evidence. Maybe you, you need it to be spelled out for you. And you need to see the miracle before your eyes so that you can have faith again. Whichever one of these camps you fall into, here's what I, I, I'm positive of. Christ will be faithful to give you the faith that you need because in Romans 12 and 3, it says that he's given each of us a measure of faith. And I just don't think that's stopped. That when my faith runs out, he gives me just enough faith to get me through the next day. He gives me just enough faith to give it through the next week. And he gives me faith to make it through this year. That, that when I need to be replenished with my faith, he knows exactly what I need to see. Maybe I, I do need to learn to to let go and just to trust that he is still God even when I can't see him. And maybe I do need to see a miracle happen right before my very eyes and I need to see the resurrection power before me. Maybe that's what I need, but he is faithful to give me exactly what I need. And I can tell you, there have been moments in my life when I, I've just had to walk in blind faith, not knowing, but speaking as though I am certain. And yet other times I've just needed a sign, some proof, so that my faith could soar beyond that moment. And, and here's what's crazy. Sometimes, sometimes, church, I need both at the same time. I need both at the very same time. And this past week, I was reminded of one of those moments in our lives. If you haven't heard yet, Mandy and I are going to be grandparents.
It was so hard, so tough. I mean, we've been holding on to this, and and I understand, you know, it it takes time to get all the right information and everything, but Caleb and Mariah told us right at the beginning of me preaching a series called Legacy Living, and I'm talking about leaving a legacy for our kids and our grandkids, a whole series, and I'm just up here trying my best not to let the cat out of the bag so finally the world knows and we can talk about it. Right, I kept it a secret. And I threatened your mother-in-law. She couldn't tell anybody. She didn't. This past week, they had a, an appointment with the doctor. We were all anxious. So ready. Mandy and I got to thinking about it. Reminiscing back when she was pregnant with our twins, Caleb and Kendall. And she had uh, some complications one night. We were living in Lake City at the time and I loaded Mandy up. I was 21 years old. Remember now, we had already gone through a battle with cancer, told that we would probably never have children. God was just doing all kinds of crazy stuff in our lives and she was pregnant with twins even though we weren't trying. I loaded Mandy up because of these complications and I took her to North Florida Regional. And we sat in an, an exam room there at the, at the ER. And the ER doc came to us and he told us words that we did not want to hear. You're losing one of the twins. He said we need to do a DNC and we need to take that one. And if you've been there, you know, if you haven't, man, just, just pray for people. Because it's the worst feeling when you think that you're losing one. He walked out of the room and Mandy and I are just crying. And the Holy Spirit said to me, don't believe this report. Listen to me, listen to me. I looked at Mandy and I said, I've got to challenge this doctor. Mandy, if you know my wife, she walks in faith. The doctor came back in and I said, I don't mean any disrespect, but we need to see a sonogram. Before we allow you to do this procedure, we need to see if there's a heartbeat. He got so angry with us. He called me out into the hallway, and this doctor looked at me, and he says, you are wasting time and resources. And by now, I had righteous indignation. And I looked at him, 21 years old, looking at a man so much smarter than I am, and I said, I don't care how much time or resources it wastes. We're not doing anything till my wife has an ultrasound. They ordered the ultrasound against his wishes. They came in. And sure enough, two heartbeats. I told them, procedure's off. Of course it's off. Did you know that ER doctor never came back to our room? 
I wish I could see him face to face. Someone told me a year or two ago who, who he was. You know, one day, one day, one day. In that moment, I experienced both. Sometimes he gives you unwavering faith, unwavering faith, even when you can't see it. And sometimes he gives us the proof that we need, and sometimes both. And I don't know who I'm preaching to today, but your God wants to give you a measure of faith in this moment. For some of you, it's, it's faith like Mary needed. Mary needed to learn that God is who he says he is. That she doesn't have to have the, the physical body of Christ standing before her in order to trust that he is still in control. Thomas needed to see the resurrected Savior and feel the scars in his, in his hands and feel the, the piercing in his side in order for him to believe, in order for the faith to be built in him. And I don't know which one you are, but here's where I know I am. I, at times, have to learn to let go, and sometimes I have to learn to hold on to a nail-scarred hand. And God wants you to understand He's not scared of either situation. And he's got enough faith for you in this moment. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.